Acts 15, verse 22 through about verse 35. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter, quote, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seems good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were with themselves, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And with that said, this being God's word, and thanks be to God for his word, let's ask his help to understand and obey it. Father in heaven, we thank you again for more time together in this place on this, the first day of the week, with brothers and sisters in Christ, our Bibles open. Lord, open our heads, open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, so that perhaps later we may be able to open our mouths and share these things with others, what we have learned, particularly the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, if last week's big idea, having dis- discussed the, the, the first part of chapter 15, having to do with the Jerusalem council, and the council was called to take care of a thorny question between Jewish Christians, that's Jews, Hebrews in Jerusalem, namely, who saw Jesus Christ as the Messiah that the prophets foretold. But then given enough time, that gospel is also taken to the Gentiles who have no such background, understand none of the Mosaic code or law or its restrictions or care much about those traditions. As more of them are saved, the question arises, well, how do we assimilate them into this rich culture we've known for so long? The argument mainly revolved around circumcision And we learned last week that the discussion was settled, that it's not required to be saved because the Lord had given salvation, evidenced by the Holy Spirit, in numerous places, the same way the key words were, God has made no distinction between us and them. 
So the big idea was you do not have to do anything to get into the family of God. Particularly, you don't have to be a good Jew to become a Christian. Well, if the big question last week, big idea, what do you have to do to get into the family of God? And the answer is nothing. Well, then this week's big idea is must you leave anything behind once you have become a Christian? We talked briefly about this last week, that those four things that they concluded after you don't need to be a Jew to be a Christian, what do we do with those? If they're not requirements for salvation, then what are they after you've become a Christian? And that's our question for today. And we've got this passage to help us with it. With James's argument, remember we listened to testimony from Peter and then Barnabas and Paul, and then James uh, closed it up together with his decision. They all agreed, seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to them. Once they'd done this, we see again, it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to send their decision back to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem from and where the Gentile church began. And not only to send Barnabas and Paul, but with them, these two leaders from the Jerusalem congregation, Judas Barsabbas, we don't know much about him, and then Silas, who's going to be Paul's counterpart on the second missionary journey. So the structure and the contents of the letter are follows. I thought it best we just look at the letter, see what's there, pull it apart, put it back together, and then see whatever it meant to them, maybe it'll help us figure out what it might mean to us. So first, it seems that they've gone to pains to disassociate themselves from what Paul called the circumcision party and therefore, by clear implication, from the requirements of circumcision. Now, I don't know when the last time you read an official letter. Uh, it, they happen all the time. Maybe it's an official letter from the power company uh, with real nice words saying, we've made an appeal to the state of North Carolina to figure out how to raise your rent. You know, but they, they can't say that that way. They've got to make it act like, you know, you're going to pay more, but it's going to be great for the planet or great for our CEO or our pension fund or whatever. But sometimes you have to skirt around a thorny issue to say what you need to say and to say it right. And a lot of times it's just an elegant way of saying a lot of something when really nothing is communicated. You can tell they're being careful here, but all, all the content is right where it needs to be. Several things going on, but part of the purpose of the two that were sent along with Barnabas and, and Paul, these two men, uh, Judas and Silas, was to undo the work that was done by the Judaizers who left Jerusalem and followed Paul and arrived about the time he left and tried to tell everybody, no, you do need circumcision. So they've got to disassociate themselves Sometimes those formal letters are to acknowledge a problem or to articulate ownership of a mistake. That's what they're doing. But you've got to distance yourself from that to convince your listener or reader that though it might have been our oversight, it might not have been our fault, and we don't expect you should have to see it happen again. So when you look at verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you, 
with words that unsettled your minds, although we gave them no instruction. We didn't send them, but we know they came, and they know they did some damage, and that's why we're writing you. Second of all, they made it clear that the delegation sent along with the letter had their full approval and support. They did not support the previous team. They did not send out the previous team. But they do send out these, and they do approve of their message. Uh, Look at verse 25. It seemed good to us having come to one accord. We're on the same page. We were not on the same page as those other guys. To choose men, send them to you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. That's the first step. The guys that, that were down there with you, that won you to the Lord, that have been useful in your ministry, that you love and are beloved, we like them too. They're our beloved and Paul and Barnabas, same as your beloved Paul and Barnabas. And then on top of that, there's this conciliatory note, who've risked their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. So they've got people that look like they might have been on either side of the issue. Now they all agree, but you've got people from both camps that are there to testify that they did agree, and this is what they said. So because a letter can seem impersonal, it was wise to send people with the letter who could explain its origin, interpret its meaning, and secure its acceptance. It makes sense. And then third, they articulated their unanimous agreement not to burden the Gentile converts with anything beyond for specific abstentions, things they're supposed to abstain from. Let's look at that one more time. Verse 28, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, so they're attaching the name of God Almighty to this, we agree with Him, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, almost as if to use the idea that Jesus would say, My burden is easy. Our yoke is easy. Burden is light. Uh, We're not going to give you things that we know that you can't carry, like the law of Moses that none of the Jews have ever been able to carry. And then verse 29, that you abstain from what has been, number one, sacrifice from idols, number two, blood, number three, what's been strangled, and number four, sexual immorality. Keep yourselves from these. You'll do well. That's the end of the letter. It's short. It's sweet. I think it's diplomatic, but it covers all the bases. But notice there's not one specific mention of circumcision anywhere in the letter. I don't blame them. Do you? We talked about that last week, and we'll leave it there last week. No, Not to mention it didn't mean to muddy it or to leave it in the fog I think the implications clear as crystal so this is a victory we learned about it last week but the victory for grace alone by faith alone there's no works associated with your salvation you can't work for it God paid for it he gives it as a gift a free gift we don't deserve but as far as what happens after you're part of the family of God Well, what do we say about that? Well, we don't want to add anything to Jesus as far as the gospel goes. That's always dangerous. When we define or identify our Christianity 
which is the Christianity. There's, there's only one gospel. Uh, when we define it by anything other than what Christ gave us, say we want to attach cultural or regional or ethnic or racial lines along with that description, then you run the risk of communicating that to be a Christian is to be like us. It's very difficult for uh, missionaries to go to another group of people totally different than them, but not by accident import American thinking along with the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, There's been entire conquest of entire continents that under the name of God conquered lots of territory and subjugated lots of people but didn't get across the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ in doing so. It's not hard to do, and we must be very careful about it. It's easier to do it than you might think. You probably need a way to think it through to see, but it could be something as easy as an emphasis in a church. All churches have their own culture. That, that, they, they sound different. They smell different. They look different. They all... But there's some basics that they have to do. Let's just say that because of the preacher who does most of the teaching, an emphasis keeps coming up because it's something that's dear to his heart. But before long, or maybe after a long time, it becomes kind of a fixture in the the culture of the church. It's likely to become an agenda if you don't watch it. And if it's extra to the gospel, it can turn into a stumbling block. You you may have heard of certain churches that are kind of on the cutting edge of some of the social things going on. Let's say that you've got a church that that is all about some local outreach to the community, such that that's all you ever feel like you hear about is we got to be about the outreach. Well, there's more in the Bible than outreach. And to be a full, well-rounded Christian, you need the whole counsel of God. And it might feel like to someone who's new there that if you're not as crazy about outreach as they are, maybe you're less spiritual. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe one thing leads to another and it can get in the ditch, but it, it, must, be, it must be watched, paid attention to. The only burden, the passage tells us, that they must bear, which is the same burden that any Christian must bear, is their responsibility to outsiders and the responsibility to conform their lives to a new code of conduct as those filled by the Spirit. You've got to understand that Jesus came to save you from your sin, which estranges you from God, then you don't get saved and run right back into the sin such that it is part of your lifestyle and defines who you are. That would not make sense at all. The idea being is to turn to Jesus in faith which is a gift he gives you in the first place, also involves your turning away from sin because that's what had separated you. Christians look different than non-Christians in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to be complicated. And we can try to hold it too tight and make it part of salvation. That's not right either. So that's why we see a list of four things given at the end of this list that says you don't need anything to be part of the family, but once you're part of the family, there's some things you need to consider. Verse 30, let's look at how he closes this out. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch with the letter, 
having gathered the congregation together, these are these four men, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Encouragement. We'll come back to that later. That's important. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets. And prophets in the New Testament are a little different than prophets in the Old Testament. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament, before they would say something, they would say, thus saith the Lord. And it's basically inscripturated from that point on. It's in our Bibles. Where prophets, gifted prophets in the New Testament, you see it more in a a word of encouragement for the congregation. Uh, There's no thus saith the Lord. They're just trying to take the letter and make sure everybody's on the same page. So they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they'd spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So they go back to Jerusalem, that is, Judas and Silas. But Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now, I got a gold star for anybody who might have noticed something in what we just read. Did anybody miss verse 34? Some of you are going... Where is it? Where's my verse 34? Somebody might say, well, I got their verse 34. What's wrong with your Bible? What we have here is an exclusion in the ESV. Now, if you've got a King James Version or an NASB, you probably have verse 34. But if you've got a modern translation like an NIV or an RSV or the ESV that we just read from, it's missing. What's going on here? Who's, who's stealing our verses in the middle of the night? Well, what you've got is something that happened between the older translations and the newer ones. That is, we dug up copies of these things and found that older copies, which were closer to the fellow who wrote this, Luke, who's writing to most excellent Theophilus, if it's closer to the date of writing, it's probably closer in fidelity to the original words, right? less likely to have copyist errors in it. Now, we had newer ones to us, but further from the original writer when the King James and the NSAB, uh, NASB, uh, chose to use it. And what we've got is called a gloss, where you've got a copyist who sees a problem and wants to fix the problem by adding an explanatory note that later wasn't an explanatory note anymore and probably got copied as scripture. What does it say? It basically says Silas stayed there. That's verse 34 if you've got it. Why would it be important for Silas to stay there? Well, because it's hard for him to go with Paul if he's not there. He misses the bus, right? Not really, because he could have gone back. There's no time stamp here. It could have been a year later. It says, Paul chose, in verse 40, if you look at that, but Paul chose Silas and departed, this is next week's passage, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So he's choosing Silas instead of Barnabas, who's going to go with John Mark. That's, again, next week. So they got rid of verse 33. Because if you've got two documents, one closer, one further, It's obvious it was added later. Does that change the gospel? No. But let me tell you where the real rub would be. Let's say we took that verse out. The last thing in the world we're going to do is renumber all the verses that were numbered way back 
That would mean verse 35 would actually be verse 30, 34 and 36 would be 35. It'd ruin Awana. I mean, what are they going to do? They've got all these verses memorized, but we found, you know, up, up there in Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls, something that says that this guy's explanatory note wasn't scripture all along, so we cut it out. And even the ASV has a little note at the bottom to explain it to you. But just so, let's say the college student headed for school doesn't hear something like this from some smart aleck who wants to tell him his Bible's a big book of lies. No, it's an honest mistake. And the scholarship is solid, even more so than any other piece of literature in human history. Study it. It's all there. All right, back to the letter's purpose. On a fundamental level, this is the assessment we're trying to make of the letter to these people And then we're still going to try to figure out what to do with those four additional statements. On a fundamental level, the letter rebukes the Judaizers for going beyond their authority. That was a problem. And assures the church that there's no such additional requirements that they said were true. They're not. It's false. And as far as works go, there's nothing you must do to be saved. There's nothing you can do to be saved. It's all by grace through faith. That's the fundamental level and it's a slam dunk. However, on a practical level, maybe, the prevention of needless offense on issues of fellowship between Jews and Gentiles, you know that these people weren't friends, especially with the Samaritans. Parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, they, they referred to Gentiles as dogs sometimes because they're pagans, but now they're saved, they have the Holy Spirit. And they've had their discussion on whether or not they need to be good Jews to to have good fellowship. Could it be that these four things that they're requiring is to help smooth out the differences if these people are going to be going to church together? It could be. There's a lot of things that are taught in the Scriptures, but the question is, what's the significance of these four? We'll need to answer this question. Is it just for their relationships because we know that it's not required for salvation. There's a lot of things that we're told to do and not to do in the New Testament. If you just restrict it to what Jesus says, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot that a new Christian needs to learn to have a, the full experience as a member with all the rights and privileges of the family of God, right? So why choose these four? Are these the most important? Are they the most pressing? Are they the most dangerous? Or could they perhaps be for a specific reason important to Gentile interests during the first century? Because, you know, a lot of scholarship say that it's it's just practical. It's it's just to to lessen the friction between them. But I don't know. Because out of the list of the, the four... The sexuality part, that's not a practical issue. That's preached from one end of the New Testament to the other. Paul says a lot about it, and so does Jesus too. So it, it, it's not just, hey, you know, nothing's required for salvation, but if, if we're going to enjoy our dinner together, don't talk about this, don't talk about this, don't talk about this, and please don't talk about this. No, it, it, I think we can agree at this point it's more than that. 
Remember, we're not talking about what needs to be done to get into the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about what or what not you must jettison after you're part of the family. And if I had a nickel for every time I heard the word legalism misused, because a lot of commentators say this is about legalism. If I had a nickel, I could buy you all lunch today with lunch prices these days. <laughs> lot of misuse of legalism is the definition of earning your salvation by working for it. That's what the Pharisees were all about. We've got to obey every piece of this Mosaic law. In that is righteousness. God will take us to heaven. That's legalism. But a lot of times just stronger brother, weaker brother arguing back and forth gets called legalism. Like, uh, hey, we're going to see this movie. Can your kids come with us? No, we don't go to movies. What are you, a legalist? Are you trying to work your way into heaven by not going to see movies? Maybe, but it doesn't have to be. There's two different things. It might just be they don't like movies because most of them are objectionable. Or let's say you're somewhere and you're with your family makes it worse. Hey, let me get you something to drink. No thanks. <laughs> Legalist. We do this at my church. Do you see what I'm talking about? There's a difference. If you think those things, abstentions or being extra holy gets you to heaven, that's legalism. But if you know it's by grace, but you have some reasons for not doing certain things, that's not legalism, but other people might accuse you of it. We've got to figure out <laughs> who's accusing who of legalism, or could it be construed as such? What are the four things again? Well, let's look at them. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, from sexual immorality. So some of the scholars say we recognize that the sexual immorality might be the outlier, but it probably has to do with Jewish scruples. And because they're the ones with the council, they can send the letter. And you know what scruples are, right? I know it's a game, but a feeling or doubt or hesitation with regard to the morality or propriety of a course of action. Surely this fits in there, but I don't think that's all of it. I don't think this whole thing is about Jewish scruples. Um, here'd be a good way to test that theory. Let's see if we could imagine a situation where we would write the letter and, or somebody else would write the letter to new Christians and let's just fill it with their cliched scruples. Okay, let's pick on independent Baptists because that's where I come from when I was little. And let's pick on them in the 80s and the 90s. Okay, and let's suppose that they wrote a letter to, say, college students or something. And it said something like, abstain from all modern Bible translations. You need verse 34 from all forms of dancing, from playing cards, most Saturday morning cartoons, and don't ever let your kids trick or treat. Now, that would be scruples. I lived in that world. I couldn't have rock and roll unless it was Christian rock and roll. And then it was sometimes 
accused of being rock and or roll. <laughs> right? As if that was a substance that could, you know, get on you and you can't get it off or, or whatever. Those are scruples. And they are important and they have their place. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think they're being petty, this council in Jerusalem. Um, Because, and this would be the the final, I, I think, argument. I don't think scruples could carry the weight of the statement, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to put no burden on you except these things. So evidently in their minds, the Holy Spirit endorses this stuff too. So it's more than than a a scruple. It's more than a, a preference. Even if we don't see much about strangled food, we do see things about sexual ethic all over the New Testament. So cut to the chase. Get to the point. Is there anything that each of these four from the text have in common? There is one thing. There may be more, but I think this one's easy to to see. All these four things have to do with the worship as well as feasts associated with pagan temples and Greek culture throughout the Roman Empire. All of them. The food was in the feasts. The sexual immorality was part of their worship in the temples in Greek culture. We don't really need to get into or elaborate with any of this. But if you go back to verse 20, that was last week's material. They're in the council. They're deciding what to do. But this isn't the edited, polished letter just yet. Verse 20, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols then from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from blood. So it's different order. But they start out with this as if it's the header and everything else is nested under it. What would be things polluted by idols? If you've got a King James Version, it's actually a plural from pollutions of idols. That there's some things... When you think of pollution, what does that mean? It's dirty, contaminated, gone bad, turned... Y'all use that word? I believe that milk's turned. It means don't drink it. It's polluted with bacteria or whatever else. I was over at the house yesterday cleaning up, and there was a coffee cup. I don't know which one of the contractor subs was. I took the lid off that thing. Turned. I need a better word for that. It had green stuff on it. I mean, really. It's polluted. Last thing in the world I'd do is drink it. But what about when the coffee was bought? It's fine. It's good. It's been polluted. So these things in this list, I think you can build the case. There's nothing wrong with that food. There's nothing wrong with a strangled animal. If an animal strangled it. Nothing wrong with its meat if, if it's prepared correctly. Even if it's been sacrificed to an idol. Paul talks about this stuff later. The meat is not haunted afterward. So it's good things that have gone bad. Things God may have given us, but we've used them for the wrong reasons. Artemis, Aphrodite, named Diana. We'll see that later in this book. Zeus, they all had their temples. They were all over the place. 
what went on in the name of their pagan worships too awful to mention. But you could say, this is historical fact, Corinth was known for, funded by their cultic brothels. This is their culture. This is where all these new Christians have come from. Their temples, their sacrifices, their feasts, their worship were all tied together and part of their cultural identity. Mardi Gras, Vegas, spring break, all rolled into one. So we know that it's what people without the grace of God do naturally. But once you have the grace of God, you don't do that anymore. That, I think, is what they're getting at. So it's not as much menu as it is venue. I heard somebody else say that. I didn't come up with it. I thought it was perfect. It's not the menu. It's the venue. Paul would would tell them, look, there are people that will be bothered if you buy the meat formerly sacrificed to idols, but the meat's fine. But if you go to the feast to eat the meat, we've got a problem. That's that's no good. Um, Modern day equivalent, I don't know. Is there anything inherently wrong with a red Solo cup? Any of you know what I'm talking about, Red Solo Cup? It's associated with a scene that God's children shouldn't have anything to do with. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask a college student. But there's nothing wrong with Red Solo Cup or what's in it unless you drink too much of it. And that's all so you can relax your morals and have a good old time uninhibited. It's the same type of parting. It's what people do when they don't have the grace of God. It's, it's not shocking. You know, somebody was telling me the other day, something went on, and I'm like, if you know your Bible and you know the deceitfulness of your own heart that's wicked, it'll lie to you. The real question is not why do people take drugs. The better question is why isn't everybody on drugs? Because of the common grace of God that saves us from that stuff. And because of the specific good news of the gospel that can give you victory over sin where you were dead to all that. So the Gentiles in Acts were directed by this council to live in particular ways in response to both their sinful past and their Christian witness going forward. These were not the only four things they needed to know. That's why Paul and Barnabas stayed and taught them. But they were critical things. We could have fun with this too. What what would a letter like this sound like if it was written by a group of Christians like the ones here at the Jerusalem Council? But it was written to Americans, I don't know, in the South, 2022. No, you don't have to listen to K-Love and eat at Chick-fil-A to be part of the family of God. (laughs) That part's a joke. But you will need to forsake a lifestyle that's contrary to the cause of Christ. You will need to live a life that resembles the life of your Savior. Um, You will need to break away from the things that were draining you, using you, killing you. Not because they were a dead end, but because it was an offense to your Creator whose righteous requirements you've failed to meet and whose son was crushed in order to pay for. There's a lot going on, and that's not who you are. 
So, yes, salvation involves turning to Jesus by faith, but it also involves turning away from sin in repentance. My father, my daddy, a pastor for almost 30 years, but preaching longer than that, that was in one place. He, used, he had a lot of statements, and I got a kick out of the first few years being here, learning how many of my dad's one-liners were Ross's one-liners. They read the same books. Um, and and, and the, the art of originality is just forgetting where you heard it from, right? But he would say, watch out that your Saturday night doesn't match your Sunday morning. And it, it, it was a good one. And it stung sometimes, especially when it's Sunday morning and Saturday night was just a few hours ago. But I had a friend... Um, who I, I learned a great deal from as far as music is concerned, played in the orchestra at the church we came from for years and years. I played the drums. He played the bass, though his instrument was a guitar. And he'd been in a, a band that the town knew for years and years. Um, he's much older than me, and he's really good. Um, and there was a point in time where we're sitting down in the orchestra pit. It was lower than the platform. He told me, I quit the band. I'm like, you did what? Because I'd even gone to the festival in the park one afternoon and, and heard him. He's good. I said, you quit the band. He said, your dad had said that Saturday morning or Sunday morning, Saturday night one too many times first time he said it I knew it but you can rationalize things and he said they know me I know them they know I'm different but it just got to be where the inconsistency was so glaring that I, I, I couldn't do it anymore I said how mad's the rest of the band he said pretty darn I said you got paid for that too yeah but it came to a point where he just this isn't good for me. It's draining me. It's, it's giving me all these distractions to keep me from what the Lord has given me. Now, strangely enough, this, I wouldn't even say is necessarily a correlation. But he, he kind of cut some ties with some people that were important to him for a, a long time, some of which didn't have much to do with him anymore. But he had a disease that affected his kidneys, both of them, and it, 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 it took them out. He had to get them taken out, which put him on a transplant list. He shared this request with his Sunday school class, and about a week later, someone in his class catches him in the hall and said, I've been praying about that thing from last week. Um, I don't know if we're a match, but if we are, I'll give you one of mine. They were a match. And he did give him one of his. And he's been living with it since. So when Jesus says, you'll pay for a lot of this stuff and you'll lose and families and relationships, but I'll give it back to you in the next life and now, we kind of miss that and now. Sometimes the group you leave is replaced by what you've got. God's not going to leave you destitute. 
Now, is, am I saying if you obey him, he'll always take care of all your problems? No, he may give you a few more, especially if you need to learn something, or he needs to be glorified. It doesn't always work that way, but sometimes it does. The truth is, doing right is its own reward, and he's promised to pay up later or now. And I think if there's anything that fits this message, it's something I came across in study. It's simply this. Some things can't be carried while you're carrying your cross. We can't carry them both. We can't serve two masters. One will hate the other. But as far as this goes, salvation is free. But being part of the family is life-changing. And once you're part of the family, a transformation happens. Here's what I'll leave you with. Verse 31, and when they read it, they, the congregation, rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, if you want to take the, the baseline out of that whole thing, well, yeah, we don't have to, you know, do that thing, you know, the Judaizers wanted us to do. That's cause for rejoicing. But when God's people hear the voice of their shepherd who gives them words of life rather than a dead end that takes that from us. It's called encouragement. We like to hear it. We say thank you. We plug it in and we stumble upward toward God's glory. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. But the responsibility gives our relationship with the Lord meaning The thing in the Old Testament where David said, I will give my Lord nothing or which cost me nothing. I'm not going to give him anything that was free to me. I'm going to give him something that's costly to me. We don't want to thin out the Christian relationship, dumb it down to where there's really nothing expected of anyone. What meaning does that have? It's just an accessory. No, this adds depth. And this has been... Uninformative passage for myself because I think it rings true and it rings clear. But with that said, let's bow our heads and we'll ask the Lord for His help, having understood so that we can obey. Father in heaven, Lord, we have heard from your word. Lord, we've made an attempt to understand it. We ask for your strength to obey it. Lord, may you remind us, may your Holy Spirit in the form of our conscience bring to our understanding the things that we need to leave behind. Having left those things behind, it's evident and clear to others that we indeed are part of the family. To drag those things around would call that into question. Would also damage our testimony would be sin against you. And Lord, may lessen or even mock your sacrifice on our behalf. So Lord, would you be pleased for your glory and grace to clean us, making us more like you today than we were yesterday, more like you tomorrow than we are today. May you increase, may we decrease for your glory and our reward Lord, we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.